Well, hey, Chris. Hey, John. How's it going? I am doing all right, and things are going fine. You're kind of eyeballing this desktop globe that I brought with me today. Yeah, what's what's that about? I want you to look at it closely, and you'll notice something other than what you might expect from a desktop globe. Um, it's quite funky looking. You have decoupaged bits of paper all over it, and... Each one has the name of a TV show on it. What kind of TV show? I get it. Yes. Spinoffs. These are all spinoffs. Okay. I can guess what you're doing. Yes. The old uh, school time game of spinning the globe and sticking your finger down blindly to see where you're going to end up. I think that's what the game was. Yes. Now that I think about it, not much of a game, but everyone did it. Right, but uh, so okay, so yeah, I can see that 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 can that's cute. That's how we can choose our our spinoffs to compare uh, every week. But um, I mean, you've got a lot on here, so again, I'm kind of afraid of getting some crummy ones. But it's I'm I'm game. I mean, it looks fun, so you know. I think once you've given her a spin. You'll see how fun this is, okay. and I guess I'll just let you do the honors. Okay, and this will be the one that we review this week. All right, here we go. And all right, I've landed right here on the completely mental misadventures of Ed Grimley. Ooh, the cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I mean, I love Ed Grimley, so I can't really. I can't really say no. Okay, so folks, if you're out there listening to this, um, which I guess if you're hearing this, by definition, you're out there listening to this. So it's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You could have skipped that part. So listeners, look in the show notes and find the link to watch The Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley, the animated version of Martin Short's famous sketch character from SCTV and SNL, which I guess makes the show kind of a double spinoff, right? Yeah, yeah, you could say that. At any rate, you can go watch that show, and then later in this episode of Saul Searching, if you've decided to stick around, you can hear us compare The Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley to Better Call Saul. Sound good? Yeah, let's do it. This is where we are now, Chris. We've got a globe. We've got other spinoffs. We've got Better Call Saul. It's a podcast. Yeah. We're back. Hey, here we are. We've watched The Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley, the pilot episode of that, called yep. Tall, Dark, and Handsome. Yep. Spelled H-A-N-S-O-M, like a handsome cab. Yep. A little pun. But for now, we're going to move on to the real reason that anyone might be listening to this. <laughs> it's not to hear our malarkey. It's to hopefully hear some insight into the latest episode of AMC's Breaking Bad spinoff, Better Call Saul, which is currently in its fourth season. We just watched the fourth episode of that fourth season. This was called Talk for obvious reasons. It was written by a former writer's assistant who became a writer on the show last year named Heather Marion. And it was directed by John Scheiben, who is a former writer from Breaking Bad who became a director on that show. And then he's directed episodes of Better Call Saul before as well. What did you think of Talk? I liked it okay. Uh, it, it did have the uh, uh, wham-bam shoot 'em up uh, uh, episode in the middle. And that's exciting. But everything else was kind of connective and was necessary to tell you we're putting these things in place so that kind of 
slightly more interesting things can happen next time. It's one of those episodes that's not, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily feel like the one you've been waiting on or anything, but uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, nice stuff about it. Yeah, it was a transitional episode in a lot of ways. There were several scenes that I would be watching them thinking, why am I watching this? Not not in the sense that like I was getting antsy watching it, but just in the sense of wondering what the scene was meant to convey. What are they showing me? Right. Like, what are they trying to show me here? I never really got restless with it. I was engaged as usual. And by the end of the episode, I think all of those little mysteries had paid off. Um, but it, it definitely did feel like certain characters were were moving towards something and certain characters were were reaching something. Like Mike, I would say more so than Jimmy at the end of the episode, really has reached a kind of crossroads. Well, Mike, also, though, you end up on a question. It's like the, the whole episode ends on... On you know Mike asking Gus this big question, and well you know that that's uh, that's that's not a step in itself. That's just a, a a lead up to a step. It may not be a big step in terms of the narrative we're watching, knowing what we know about Mike. But if you think of the guy who has been the Mike on this show, the the disgraced former cop who lost his son and is trying to do right by his daughter-in-law and his granddaughter. That guy tries to stay on, on, on the legal, lawful, moral side of things for the most part. And the Mike we see later working for Gus Fring as a merciless, cold-hearted fixer, that guy doesn't seem to trouble himself quite as much with the right and the wrong of the situation. So I do think him facing Gus and, and, and asking so that he can grapple head-on with what it is that Gus wants him to do is a significant moment because we know he does the job and we know what becomes of Mike because of that. Um, so yeah, that that makes it uh, have impact for me. It was also just a great button at the end of Mike's arc in this episode where we saw how he was trying to do this grief counseling thing, which again seems like a very normal, healthy way to handle things and that that doesn't seem to be working out for him. Right. I don't know that I got the whole uh, uh, group session uh, arc, though. You know, I think I'm just a little disconnected. Like, do people go into those things and make up stories? And what's the point that just are they that lonely and trying to get sympathy? Does the guy have a dead wife, but he's pretending he has a different dead wife? Like, what, what was up with Henry? What was his deal? I think the pathology of that character is that he enjoys the the thrill of of sharing in people's grief and kind of like of of having people sympathize with him. Yeah. You know, of going in there and getting people to say, Oh, we feel sorry for you and a sense of belonging through that. Right. I mean I can believe that. I just never conceived of people doing that. And so to me it was like, Oh, is that what it is. I think we're meant to think this is an unusual circumstance, and Mike kind of ferreted it out with yeah. his with his uncanny abilities to to get to the meat of whatever situation that he's in. His police powers of lie detection. Right. And we see how Mike's feelings about Henry's lies evolve over the course of the episode. When he's sitting in the diner talking to Anita, we get a sense that it's almost a little game he plays to amuse himself, spotting Henry's tells and noticing you know, that he's making up these stories about his wife and, and he points it out to her in this almost glib way. Mm -hmm. Then it just really points up to me how he goes to these meetings out of a sense of obligation to Stacy, but he's not really getting that much out of them. But then later, when he actually is having a genuine moment of reverie about his departed son, Maddie, 
this time Henry's lies actually impinge on that and they cheapen a genuine moment that Mike uh, is having. Right. And I think maybe he just doesn't have genuine moments that often around these people. And so his anger, when he lashes out, not just at Henry, but at the group, feels to me like a reaction to that, to to kind of forcing him to perform his emotions in public. Well, he came to the right place, didn't he? He knew you wouldn't notice. And you didn't. All wrapped up in your sad little stories, feeding off each other's misery. He wanted me to talk. I talked. I kind of felt like the cement thing and writing the name in the cement it was like a, a cinematically nice little thing to see, but I wasn't sure how it really connected. I think that scene with Maddie, the, the little brief flashback, was there just to say this is what was in Mike's mind when he was listening to Stacy talk and thinking about Maddie, and then that's what was interrupted by Henry's, you know, false story. It's kind of because of that sense of betrayal that Mike just burns it all down. Right. Yeah, he kind of let it out that he's not that into uh, going to this group. <laughs> Another scene that was vague to me at first, but when I thought about it, I saw why it was there. Um, outside of just some really cool set design, was the scene where Victor sits outside of the Westward Ho Motel, which is this bombed out motel that has been taken over by the, we find out later, the Espinoza yeah, family right. um, and used as a base of operations. And the way that each room of this motel was being used for some other nefarious purpose. Yeah, yeah. And we follow one of Gus's guys into this world with this uh, bag uh, of drugs. And it looks like it's just a drug deal. And he comes out with a wad of money and says to Victor, it's done. Mm -hmm. And it didn't occur to me till later, that was all there to set up the Espinozas, that later when the Salamancas are given the false tip that it was the Espinozas who took out the hit on Arturo and shot Nacho, um, when they go in, they in fact find the drugs that should have been theirs, the drugs that Arturo and Nacho were going to get the night that Gus killed Arturo and apprehended Nacho. And it didn't really crystallize for me until after the shootout, we see the uh, cousins coming out and one of them is carrying the duffel bag that was delivered to the Espinosas in the earlier scene. I didn't get the detail of, of the point of setting up the bag at the beginning. I didn't notice him coming out with the bag at the end. And so I feel kind of like this is like the third thing we've said that during the episode had me kind of going like, huh, I don't know if I'm getting that. And so I'm kind of blaming myself and feeling like a doofus, but at the same time, I'm a little bit like, are they being a little too subtle? How many people are not getting these same things that I'm not getting? But I can see, you know, that if you caught that sight of that bag, and maybe it was uh, obvious and I should have caught it, but I didn't catch sight of the bag when he came out, that, yeah, if I had seen that, I guess I would have said, okay. So they he, yes they put the bag in there to make sure that they would believe the story and that now they've got it and they're coming out with it, but uh, I I didn't catch it. So is that on me or is it on them? It's a little bit of both in that you can argue that many many good movies and books and television shows have that second time through where certain things jump out at you, right? And that's part of the beauty of it. 
and how and that's a sign of how good something can be. Mm-hmm. But I think that if it requires a second viewing for you to get certain things straight, right? That maybe it could be more clear. Yeah. But I don't know where, where that sliding scale is between the subtlety and the and the satisfaction. You know, and right. I guess if you can wait through an episode to get to the satisfaction of certain things, then it seems like, oh, okay, that's that's worth it. That's not too much to ask. And it's a matter of taste. How many people like a movie where they, you know, felt a little confused or a little in the dark and then they got to that certain scene and it got cleared up? Or how many people like one where they totally missed it until the second or third viewing, you know? Uh, and how many people would, would prefer that they just have no no confusion about what the finer points of the story are supposed to be. I think if you can get the general broad strokes and enjoy the emotional content of that, which I would say for me is, is, is almost always the case on this show that I'm always going to be engaged in the moment to moment drama they create. Even if it's within a moment where I just was thinking, I'm not that interested in this. And suddenly I'm interested in it. Mm -hmm. This is just the next step in, in Gus's plans for Nacho, but it did have, you know, had explosions and, and a, a big body count, and and we got to see the the cousins doing their Terminator thing, yes, and, uh, on a scale that we've never seen before. And you have to think that in terms of the drug world, this is a pretty major hit. This is a this is where the legend of these guys would be founded. Yes, they're crazy. They go in with their bag full of guns, and when one's used up, they pull out another one, and they just keep going. And I thought the scene was well framed through Nacho's sickly ailing point of view and that it ended up with not just Nacho talking to Gus, yep. but he also ended up turning to his father as a kind of refuge, which seems significant in an emotional way, but also seems like it can't bode well for for Nacho's dad. If he, if he remains a character on the show and we keep seeing him, <laughs> the odds of something bad happening to him mm-hmm. just seem to increase, but maybe I'm being too cynical. Well, Nacho's not doing too good himself. He's still, his one arm is kind of hanging, and uh, he's not looking too good. And his dad can totally see that. So, um, to me, the fact that he doesn't speak to the 911 operator and instead hangs up, it kind of feels like a turn in the relationship between Nacho and his father, because not only is the dad not saying, get out of my house, I don't want to see you, he's now sort of harboring Nacho, Mm -hmm. which makes him probably more complicit than he feels comfortable being, but uh, out of love. Yeah. In a twisted way, it's a very warm scene. It was worrisome. But yet again, also, it's kind of like Nacho does the Batman trick of coming in and sitting in the dark until until the person arrives. <laughs> You're right. It's like, oh, there's somebody in my house. Oh, it's my son again. <laughs> His dad's like, knock or text. <laughs> right. Either one. Before we totally leave Nacho behind, I do want to get into a little bit the sort of tangled web around him that right now he's meeting with Gus and Gus is saying, go home and rest. I've got more work for you to do. And Nacho is sort of accusing Gus of something that we knew was apparent, that uh, what Gus is doing is an elaborate grab for territory and for dominance. And for Nacho to realize that he's just a cog in this master plan of Gus's. Um, And then on the other side of it, Gus is talking to Mike about Nacho and how Mike is kind of in hot water with Gus because Gus knows that Mike knew that Nacho was trying to hurt Hector it all checks out once I think about it, but it felt like they were kind of nickel and diming some stuff that that was not that fresh in my mind. Like, I don't know that we know for sure how Gus found out, except that Gus seems to know everything. And Mike is in that moment, you know, defending himself and saying he didn't owe Gus anything. 
But I was racking my mind trying to piece back together the narrative of exactly who knew what and when and did what to whom and how. Yeah, they talked about it in kind of obtuse terms, and I had to gather, like, okay, I think that he is saying, Mike, you knew that it was Nacho's plan to kill Hector, and Mike is saying, hey, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm. it's not my job to keep Hector safe, uh, and, uh, but I was like you. I was like, oh, I didn't even remember that Mike knew about Nacho's plan. Uh, it's it's kind of become a blur to me. I guess uh, it's uh, it's been enough time. It's been, you know, a year and something ago uh, since we've dealt with that stuff, and it's sort of, uh, it starts to... Uh, melt away the neurons aren't staying connected it's become a cliche to compare these prestige television shows to books but the comparison does bear out in a lot of ways and i think that if you were you know three-fifths of the way into a long novel and you had put it down for over a year and you picked it back up there would be certain characters and interactions that would confuse you right you'd be thinking like wait a minute maybe i don't know who this is yeah, who is this other person? Yeah. It's kind of a function of this kind of storytelling, mm-hmm. but it does make me think, what are they trying to do? What sort of storyline are they trying to muscle into our minds? Mm-hmm. But once I got it all straight, it really seemed like they're finally paying off the character of Nacho. I do remember reading somewhere that Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould felt a little bit bad for Michael Mando in that they brought him in as a as a lead and a series regular from the beginning of the series. And they said they might not have brought him in so quickly if they had known how long they were going to take to get to some of these other plot developments, that they had initially thought they would move much faster through the storyline. And so now I think we're finally getting to the point where Nacho's character really seems like a load-bearing character in that the way that he's positioned between the Salamanca family and the Fring gang... Um, <laughs> There's got to be a better name for it than that. It makes him feel sort of Shakespearean, like he looms larger in this world because of the mythic importance of these other characters that he's kind of torn between. Yeah. And even though we think we know because his name comes up on Breaking Bad that he's alive, we don't really know that we know. There's there's a lot of mystery around Nacho, and I think he's he's sort of fulfilling his potential as a character in a big way this season. I guess we don't really know, but yeah, we have a hint that uh, he's probably alive from the line that's in Breaking Bad where he's mentioned uh, when Saul is introduced. We know that Jimmy thinks right. that Nacho is still out there. Right. I guess speaking of Jimmy, we can talk about him now. He was bored for a lot of the time we saw him on screen. Mm-hmm. We see him turn down the job at the beginning of the episode, and then when Kim hits him up about seeing professional help for dealing with his emotions, mm-hmm. the lie to Kim about the job was meant to deflect from the conversation about the shrink. Yeah. And that after he lied to her, it had him doubling back to the fact that, well, there is a job. Mm -hmm. So I felt like that was shady and sneaky, but also ultimately showed him trying to do, quote unquote, what's right. You know, take this job that he said he got Mm -hmm. and uh, try to put in an honest day's work. But it shows you how on the edge he is between doing something right and normal and and just sloughing off. Because when he said, uh, you know... Uh, when when he when the guy called him and said you've got the job and he said oh no I'm I'm not taking it after all uh, to me that was like oh this is a big life decision here he has just decided uh, no I, I'm not uh, taking a normal job right now after all I'm slacking and the only because of Kim was he spurred into all right I'll 
I'll take the job. You can sense that he really needs the distraction. Like he wishes the place was busier. Um, he wants to actually be doing something. A bored Jimmy is dangerous to himself and to others. Right. He's like a teenager in a small town who's like, you know, we're going to go knock mailboxes off their posts with a baseball bat, you know, because we have nothing else to do. And so here he is having nothing to do and uh, he could go wrong at any minute. I couldn't tell if this episode was pointing to Jimmy realizing how much the criminal element could use burner phones and cell phones. Right. Based on what Ira said when he went and got the money from Ira. Right. Or if he's going to be inching towards stealing poor Irene's Hummels. Right. If things get dire. I, I couldn't tell when, when, when Ira brought that up. It was obviously meant to make us think of Irene when he said, nowhere we could get more. And Jimmy thinks for a second and says, no. To me, that felt like, okay, that was one of those character tests that shows that he's not quite there yet, that he's not full-on evil. You but know? then he changes his mind. He says, well, we'll get some more. I'm liking this Hummel thing. Cash came fast and clean. Got any more where that came from? Mm. No, not really. Eh, uh, bummer. We're going to do this again. I'll find something. Sounds good. When you do, call the vet. Yeah? Yeah. New job, new phone. You never know who's listening. I think more so what he's thinking after that scene is there's, there's, uh, there's profit in selling phones to these guys. You know, crooks. Criminals. Yep, he, does, he paints the windows beautifully uh to say uh is the man listening privacy sold here yep he's definitely going to make some some money for the cc mobile company right which is again a, 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 you know a, a suggestion a hint of saul uh the idea of realizing this customer base of of criminals <laughs> right <laughs> exists right i thought that was a nice way to take that scene because it it made me stop thinking for a second oh inevitably now he's going to rob irene because i could see something really bad happening with that like if irene gets robbed you know the heart attack the whatever that could happen um to me seems too dark and and too treacherous uh so i don't know maybe maybe that nod was just to make us think will he and then he didn't instantly say yeah i know a little old lady who's got a shelf full of right is is this chekhov's gun what do you think jimmy stealing from irene is it too juicy not to do i don't think that they've set it up to where they have to do it based on what we've seen tonight but uh they definitely make you think that it's a it's a good possibility would you be fine with that well, no, I don't want to see uh, him go uh, down that path, but of course that's probably where we're going to go. I mean, that's a, you're sort of asking me would I be fine with the planned trajectory of the show, I guess. <laughs> and that's a good question. Uh, you, you could have asked me at, uh, after episode one, are you fine with uh, watching a, a, a tricky young man become a... Very tricky lawyer, and it's like, well, it just depends on how tricky he is. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know if I was fine with watching uh, Walter White uh, turn bad. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a great entertainment, but it didn't make me feel good about him. What I'm asking is, though, would the Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad rob a little old lady who was his friend? Right. We don't know. I think that we probably think that he's a mystery, and he might or might not, depending on the circumstances or depending on whether he could 
um, explain it to himself or to other people. Uh, if he can get out of it with his words, then he probably would. If he can justify it to himself with his words, even. Well, I mean, he can justify it to himself, but he may have a hard time justifying it to people around him. Like, it seems like even though Kim is obviously still in his corner and she's got her own fish to fry, um, like she's a person whose disappointment could actually still matter to Jimmy. I really think that might be the last one, the last person who he gives the slightest damn mm-hmm. what she thinks. Mm-hmm. And she may be too busy to notice some of these signs right now. I thought it was interesting this week that she was kind of trying to return to some sort of vision of a lawyer as a person who got their hands dirty. Mm-hmm. Did Judge Munzinger nail her intentions that she was trolling his court? Yes. He totally nailed her that she is playing save the broken lawyer um, and that that now reveals what we were unable to glean from her sort of going to a, going into a miasma last week when she was looking at the models and then looking at the monument and we were like i guess she's overwhelmed and not ready to come back or i guess she's you know we were kind of a little befuddled as to what we were supposed to get out of it and i guess it was a mystery that's how slow this show can go where they're like we're going to show you one week that a character is feeling something and then we'll wait till the next week to tell you what they're feeling but i think that this week we learned that what she's feeling is Oh, I'm not passionate about this. I don't care about helping a bank grow. She was feeling an intense level of ennui about Mesa Verde, and that's why she's like, oh, you know what? I don't want to write up these contracts. I'm going to give that to my my paralegal to write all that, and I'm just going to okay it. Meanwhile, I'm going to start going to try. And she did tell her last week immediately, like, hey, take me over to the courthouse. And it was never followed up on what she was doing. Now we know. She was sitting in on trials, and she is trying to rekindle her interest in the law before she goes, I don't even want to be a lawyer anymore, and goes, goes completely off track. So, uh, And then he says, the judge says to her, if I see you again, uh, we've got a, a, you know, a shortage of public defenders. If I see you again, I'm going to put you to work. And there she is again. So I guess it's pretty clear that he's going to uh, put her on a case and she's going to be defending somebody who uh, can't afford to be defended. And it puts her much more in the milieu of the other characters on the show that are doing dastardly things, too. I mean, again, it, it puts her in the possible crosshairs of Jimmy's situation or Nacho's situation or Mike's situation or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? There's a, You're saying if she gets on a criminal case, it could be it could be connected to that world. If she's practicing law kind of in the trenches like that instead of, you know, going to banks yeah. and writing up contracts and stuff, it just puts her a little bit more in the mix. Yeah. I'm not asking for everything to converge, but, you know, that that is the kind of thing that towards the end of a season or at the end of a show, you, you enjoy when things start looping back around yeah well i guess it's time to move on to our other spinoff of the week and it was one that uh, we picked at the beginning of the episode i don't know if you remember when this show was originally on back in 1988 the pilot for the animated show the completely mental misadventures of ed grimley i don't know let's explain ed grimley to people that that might not remember him or know who he is he's a sketch character created by martin short and 
he was on SCTV. It was the first place I saw him, the television show, SCTV. And when Martin Short joined SNL, he brought Ed Grimley with him. And I think that really increased the popularity of this character. Right. That is why this cartoon is a double spinoff, because the character appeared on two shows before being turned into its own show. Mm-hmm. This was an animated show made by Hanna-Barbera, roughly for kids, but also sort of aiming at that same... Um, childish adult place that Pee-wee's Playhouse and the Ernest, I don't know if you remember that Ernest, uh, Jim Varney's character Ernest had a Saturday morning show that was in that Pee-wee's Playhouse vein of if you sat down and watched it with a more mature sensibility, you probably found the silliness fun. Right. Um, And I I think this was NBC's attempt at creating that kind of Saturday morning programming. And it seemed like a shoe in in a lot of ways. But I don't know. uh, What else would we say about Ed Grimley? He's kind of a man child, like a lot of these characters are. He has... Pointy hair, right? He's something, something else about Ed Grimley. <laughs> he's he's a fantastic, weird man child. He uh, plays the triangle. His hair is slicked up for no reason. He wears super high pants, and uh, you know he loves uh, Pat Sajak and Wheel of Fortune. Just really stupid, mundane stuff like that. He's always uh, very excited, very uh, uh, enthusiastic about these things. He's he's great as a as a live-action sketch character, and I love Martin Short. I've always loved Martin Short, and so I love Ed Grimley. And he's, it's just, really, he, to me, he was always mainly like an excuse uh, for silly screaming because he, was, he would constantly, like, uh, uh, pull uh, hot dishes out of the oven with no oven mitts on and then scream, you know. Uh, but then he would say something in the midst of screaming, like, that's a pain that's going to linger, or something like that. He would say something. <laughs> right, I must say. Well, yeah, I must yeah. say, I found out some interesting things about that. I did a little research into the origins and the, you know, I kind of wanted to freshen my memory as to Ed Grimley's backstory and uh-huh. mythology and how they used him on SCTV, which was a show that was rife with parodies, um, very keenly observed parodies, you know? Um, yeah. They stuck him into a kind of nutty professor sort of parody, mm-hmm. um, which you can see the correlation between Martin Short and Jerry Lewis and obviously Ed Grimley, the, the, what you described, grabbing the hot plates or whatever. That's a very Jerry Lewis kind of thing to do. But I think that um, the fact that he was very obsessed with mundane and banal things was, was funny. And the politeness, the Canadian, the super Canadian politeness that he had uh-huh. uh, yeah. was funny. And apparently when he was in just the, the live shows that he did, um, he had the affectation of saying A at the end of sentences. Yeah. And when he got onto SCTV, uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie, being characters from that show created by Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas, oh. they were so famous for saying A at the end of their sentences yeah. that he created other things. And I must say was his replacement for just saying A at the end of sentences. Oh. You know, so it's like that was the stroke of brilliance, I would say. Yeah, it's way better anyway. I think that Bob and Doug McKenzie are in a different zone um, of, of humor, um, but a similar sort of caricature. Bob and Doug McKenzie are sort of Canadian rednecks. Right. And Ed Grimley is something else. He's he's akin to Pee Wee Herman. He's akin to that type of crazy kid show character. But the fact that he was on an adult sketch show and then he's on a cartoon that is for kids, but also has obviously tried to hold on to some of the sensibility of SCTV yeah. that has sort of an adult tone to it. I don't know that NBC really knew quite what they were doing with this with this show or, or quite what this show would be. And I don't know that this show was quite successful for what it was, but it was not without its charms. Yeah. Um, and I read something. The episode we watched was the pilot episode, uh, Tall, Dark, and Handsome. Uh, handsome spelled like Handsome Cab. 
is supposedly one of the weaker episodes. Oh. So for whatever that's worth, I looked at the list of other episodes and the other plots did sound more silly and fun and have people like Dave Thomas yeah. and uh, Christopher Guest and people like that showing up as as wacky characters. And yeah. Stuff. So I, I, I can kind of remember watching this show when it was on and catching two or three episodes. I feel like it was one of those Saturday morning cartoons that in our market in Birmingham, Alabama was hard to catch and maybe not on every week mm-hmm. and maybe they didn't air every one. Um, but I do remember seeing three or four of these and I remember kind of wanting to like it. Mm-hmm. In 88, I would have been... 15, mm-hmm. and I would have already gorged on SCTV. Yeah. So while the cartoon does have some funny stuff in it, um, as compared to the original show, it can only ever seem like a weird, watered-down, homogenized version of that sensibility. Yeah, definitely. Hanna-Barbera can't uh, really pull off actual good comedy for the most part, especially in in, in those years, the late 80s. But, um, and... It, it's just not uh, cartoony enough to be a cartoon. Like the the designs are not very consistent. Uh, Ed Grimley is maybe drawn in an okay way, but then when you see that the other characters, he's got a, a rat and a fish, and they are drawn more cartoonily. The other characters are drawn slightly more cartoonily, but still fairly blandly. And he's he's the most bland looking out of all of them, and because they're going for a a nice Martin Short caricature, and that's fine, but it means that our main hero on this funny show is not very funny looking. And then even when he, you know, when he screams and does something wacky, well, there's your opportunity to at least bug his eyes out or do some crazy animation with his hair or his movement or something, and they don't do that. It's like he's almost standing still even through those moments. So it's just a, Hanna-Barbera just doesn't pull off the, the comedy of it, but I do respect the whole thing for the attention that Martin Short and his his SCTV cohorts really put into it. They did try and write on it and bring in various voices and everything, and Jonathan Winters is on it, so it's got some good efforts, and you saying that the other episodes are supposed to be better does make me want to go back and watch the other ones, because this was, you know, decent, I must say. It's got, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, is some live action bits. It, it's got a, a Count Floyd in there. Is live action. And that's fun. Starring Joe Flaherty, who is doing an SCTV character on this cartoon. Right. And it was almost this proto cringe comedy where the whole premise is Count Floyd has an in studio audience of kids for his kids show. Um, which in the Ed Grimley cartoon is the show that Ed Grimley stops to watch uh, in every episode. Um, so Count Floyd is just bombing in front of these kids and it kind of goes on and on. And, and, you know, it definitely felt like they were managing to wedge in that SCTV feeling of, of paradising something very specific, which is this kind of cheap local kids show. Right. They always did that kind of thing brilliantly. Right. And they would do a parody of a bad movie and the parody would be bad in it in the same way. So you're watching, Mm -hmm you know, a poor quality product because it's making fun of a poor quality product with, with, uh, you know, uh, improper pauses and stuff. Right. So I guess, I mean, that, that attention to detail, you're right. It is in there, but it's, it's funny that you started off with the Hanna-Barbera thing, because I was thinking, especially you being an animator, when you think Saturday morning, Hanna-Barbera animation, you just know that it's going to be about as 
processed as possible through that sort of budget cutting sensibility. Um, I, I feel like there were attempts to try to animate some of Ed Grimley's mannerisms, you know, to give right. some full animation to some of those things he does. Like one of the things he does is is he plays triangle. This was something that was mm-hmm. prevalent in all his sketches as well. Mm-hmm. He likes to turn on the the Victrola <laughs> and play like uh, sounds like Hungarian Turkish dance music or mm-hmm. something. And um and and he play he holds up his triangle mm-hmm. and it and he basically plays one note right. and then that's him playing along with the music and he kind of dances maniacally after playing the one note. And they tried to bring that into this. You know what I mean? They tried to animate that. And they did kind of get in his uh, posture, you know, the way he stands in a weird way with his uh, feet uh, pigeon-toed a lot of times and stuff. And and they did do that. Hanna-Barbera, you know, even through that era, would find moments of like, you know, let's spend our money animating this bit and then use it throughout the episode or or once per episode or whatever, and that's how they would kind of get away with with stuff so that the whole episode would not be completely irredeemable. But that right. that would be the thing for this one is like, let's let's try to peg how he stands and try to peg the way that he does the triangle dance, and then the rest of the time we're just going to coast. And I think there's also something kind of subdued about the vocal performance, or at least it feels that way. Like there's some yeah. that's lacking some of that dynamism that the i mean maybe it's just not having the visual component of martin short even though ed grimley is a live action cartoon he's better realized as a live action being than as an animated being like martin short's physicality is is part of what makes that character funny right in this case the real man is cartoonier than a cartoon uh but that's mainly because they didn't draw cartoony enough cartoon uh, and because Martin Short is a very wacky person. I guess this is a good time to just kind of talk in general about the Martin Short sensibility and and where we stand with Martin Short. I, I, I think that you are, like me, a great admirer and lover of Martin Short. Is that correct? Yes. Because I know there are people that act as though he's not funny because he's he's so try hard he's you know he's always after it yeah like he would be the guy who would go on a talk show and and wheel out you know 12 characters that he's he's known for doing i mean ultimately to me he seems like he's kind of poking fun at show busyness when he does that stuff yeah he's self-aware about it and he doesn't have to do it he just does it because he feels like it that night and he thinks that's the funniest thing to do that night i i think i think if you told him no, there's a rule against that tonight, he would say, okay, and find other ways to be funny. But, uh, uh, you know, I would ding Dana Carvey for that because he seems like when he goes on a talk show, he's unable to be a normal human and he's doing a string of impressions and it's really not so funny. I wouldn't ding Martin Short for it because he can snap in and out of it at any moment or change the topic. And also, it is funny to me (laughs) when he's doing it. I'm fine with it. I love him. Do you have a favorite Martin Short character? I love Jiminy Glick. I watched every episode of the Jiminy Glick and uh, uh, think it's it was impeccable. I love Nathan Thurm, the uh, uh, lawyer with the cigarette that that he never ashes. Uh huh. But he's a very defensive guy. 
Uh, I don't remember. That. He's super sweaty, like they've put Vaseline on his face or something. <laughs> yeah. Christopher Guest and Billy Crystal are these two guys who make novelties. Okay. And they are losing money because there's this company that's selling stuff cheaply and making these cheap knockoffs of their products. Uh-huh. And and Martin Short is the lawyer. You know, these, in, in 60 Minutes tradition, the guy that they corner. Yeah. I need to look him up, but just your description makes me laugh. That's how funny I find Martin Short, that just thinking about him doing silly things, I, I laugh just based on the idea. I think about um, uh, Jackie Rogers Jr. Uh, from SNL <laughs> as being one yeah. of the most just ridiculous, over-the-top characters. So anybody that doesn't know him... Jackie Rogers Jr. is the best example of like showbiz caricature that is also super... Like You're watching him do you know, a full-length performance, often on SCTV <laughs> anyway. Right. To me, he's one of those geniuses of comedy. Yeah. I can tire of Martin Short. Once in a while, I will say I will see him and say, "Oh, okay, stop doing Catherine Hepburn and a little bit too lazily." You know, you need to either make sure you're totally on point, uh, or just set it aside. This maybe I've seen one one too many instances of that, but. For the most part, I'm always on his side. And I'm excited to see, uh, you know, he's touring with uh, Steve Martin, and I've got tickets for November. I guess we've come to the big question, which may not be the biggest question, but, you know, it's still a question this time around. Did you think, based on what you saw of uh, the completely mental misadventures of Ed Grimley, that it is a better spinoff than Better Call Saul? No, I'm pretty darn sure it's it's not better. Uh, at all, it doesn't have the uh, uh, the depth and and development, uh, and and it's not nearly as as thought out. But gosh darn it, I, I'm I'm rooting for uh, any of the folks from SCTV and all their efforts, and so I, I I do give it a thumbs up. Whatever you think of Ed Grimley, this is not the finest form of Ed Grimley. Right, unquestionably, you should look at the sketches if you want to get a feel for what Ed Grimley is. It's also lacking something it could have had even just as a cartoon. And I think it's that Saturday morning, you know, uh, Hanna-Barbera processing plant where despite whatever attempts they might have made to let it have some individual character, it does feel like it's had a little bit of the the verve sucked out of it. Right. It has a few sparks in there. You know, some of the, of course, like any 80s cartoon, you still have some some classic animators from from the golden era who were hanging around like uh Don Lusk who was uh, uh uh one of the brilliant Disney animators who worked on uh Pinocchio and Bambi and stuff was was uh working on on uh, Ed Grimley and uh Irv Spence who did uh those old MGM Tom and Jerry's some of the best animations ever been done uh was was working on Ed Grimley cuz those guys were still hanging around they're old and they didn't have enough money to quit, I guess. And uh, so, uh, uh, you know, you have a couple of guys like that on there, but uh, they can't rescue this thing when it's like, we got to do an episode every week and we have to send all the all the, all the in-betweening off to China, to Taiwan or whatever they did. I did notice in my research some of those connections to classic animation, and I actually am glad you brought that up because when I saw that, I thought, oh, I wonder if any of these names mean anything to Chris being a bit more of a you know a historian for that stuff than I am. Well, yeah, I mean any anything from the from the eighties, you're going to find people from from an earlier era who are still hanging on, and and the earlier careers of people who went on to do a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, Scott Shaw 
and uh, Bob Alvarez are, are big names, and they were involved in the show. But, uh, you know, uh, that doesn't mean that their contributions were necessarily great. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's all right. It is not terrible. This is a pretty quirky show for Hanna-Barbera. Well, I think you're right that they were trying to go for a little more of that audience where it's like, let's make this Saturday morning cartoon, but let's do see if we can also get some some teenagers and some 20-somethings who are still willing to turn on the TV at this hour. Um, and so it does kind of do that a little bit, but uh, I don't know. Not great. So... Better Call Saul is still intact as the best spinoff, at least that we've considered yet. Yes. And as you can see, Chris, looking at the desktop globe, a lot of places to journey to. Yep. What did you think? How, how do you feel this worked out? As, better than the list, right? Definitely better than, than the ones we were getting off of that, off of that list. So uh, maybe, maybe we'll do this again next week and see, see what comes up. So you're saying, just real quick, uh, you like the Ed Grimley cartoon better than Barnaby Jones... Better than Mr. T and Tina, and better than Aftermash and Walter. No, I like Barnaby Jones the best of of what we've done so far. I think I would agree with that. That Barnaby Jones is better than the Ed Grimley cartoon. Yeah, if we start ranking them all, <laughs> it was going to get complicated. But so far, <laughs> we could so we could say Better Call Saul followed by Barnaby Jones. I'm just glad that we could bring people to this point, Chris, where we've realized this. <laughs> hey, folks, in case you were wondering, you can write down in your notebooks at home. Barnaby Jones is better than the Ed Grimley cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> Surely they were wondering that. That's been worth every minute to find that out. All right, hot talk. Hot talk. <laughs>